This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo from the Great War Channel in, as you can guess and probably can hear, a bit of a special situation because I'm not in the studio at the moment with Jesse, I'm recording this at home and that's simply the fact because today is March 23rd, 2020. For future historians listening to this, uh, this is uh, during the height or let's say first height maybe uh, of the COVID-19 coronavirus situation. So we are all working from home. Uh, we are all practicing um, social isolation to uh, flatten the curve, as they say nowadays. And that being said, the internet is still working and we figured uh, now is the best time as ever to do some podcast recordings for you. So... Two weeks ago, when the world looked still very different, uh, we published an episode, our first episode, on the Irish War of Independence, which really heated up in 1920, but was already um, going on. Like it had, there was some history before that. Like the Irish question already popped up before World War One with the Home Rule question. Um, there was the Easter Rising in 1916. There was events in 1919. We described all of that. We went a, uh, a bit into the details about the tactics and how the basically this kind of guerrilla warfare between the factions there evolved. And you guys out there in YouTube land really liked this episode. And it's the most successful episode we've done since our episode about the Treaty of Versailles. Which means, I mean, even before that, that was clear for us, but we will um, have more episodes about the, the Irish question, also when it transitions from the Irish War of Independence into the Irish Civil War. But in the meantime, we figured, since there seems to be such a big interest in the topic, uh, we should ask an expert. And through the magic of Skype, I have an expert on the line here, and his name is James, and he's going to tell you who he is and what he does. Hi, James. How are you doing? Hi Flo, not too bad considering uh, the way everything is going at the moment. Um, so yeah, my name is James Nagel. For the last two years I've been making uh, a series on YouTube called The Irish Nation Lives, heavily inspired by the Great War. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Timmy Reedy, sent me on a link to the channel back in 2015. And around 2016 I thought to myself that I might be able to, to do something similar when it came to the major anniversaries that we're witnessing in Ireland at the moment. So for the last two years I've been kind of on a event-by-event event basis documenting the, the major happenings in the War of Independence and of course we'll be looking at the Civil War in about a year's time. Cool, of course we will put a link to your YouTube channel uh, in the comments or in the description of this podcast episode and we'll post about it um, on our social media channels when this uh, podcast episode goes live. So James, um, we figured since there's such a big interest from the viewers in this episode, why don't we just ask our Patreons what they want to know 
So I didn't write down any questions. All the questions uh, here are coming from our Patreons. I sent them to you in advance so you could have a glimpse at them. And I think yeah, we, that's right. we, we can just go through the list I made. All right, mm -hmm. so. Excellent. Um, the first question comes from TA. Uh, and that's, um, what kind of innovations in guerrilla warfare did the Irish war have in comparison to pre-World War One conflicts like the Boer War? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, the, the War of Independence sits in a strange place between the... Uh, the guerrilla conflicts that had came before it and those that would come after it. Generally, it's it's kind of forgotten about. It's not included in the events of the 19th century and it's not included kind of in the post-World War II insurgencies. And it's really a link between the two of them. If we look at the Boer War, what you have is um, an attempt at a standing army and an attempt to engage in a regular form of, of combat. And as the Boers lose ground, as they lose territory, and as their army gets smaller, they kind of resort to guerrilla tactics. The War of Independence, out of necessity, had started as a, a guerrilla conflict at the very start. Um, Small-scale attacks, including or involving groups of men of about 10 to 12 in size, uh, attacking isolated RIC patrols, Royal Irish Constabulary patrols to start with, so if you look at some of the, the major innovations, I suppose, interestingly enough, the, the War of Independence is heavily inspired by, of all things, the suffragette movement. And this is where the major um, innovations have came from. The two big things in the Irish War of Independence which impact uh, future insurgencies would be uh, hunger strikes and uh, political prisoner status. And both of these actually come from um, the, the suffragette movement, which had been uh, ongoing in England and America um, just a, a couple of years beforehand. So if we take a look at hunger strikes, uh, the, the first hunger strike in England, I think, was in 19 was either 1906 or 1909. The suffragette movement had started to become kind of more violent in its demands for uh, votes for women. And the, the Irish, um, during the War of Independence, utilize the, the hunger strike as a weapon against um, basically overwhelming British military force. The, the first hunger strike is in 1917. Um, I'm trying to think. Tomás Ash is, is, uh, dies in prison uh, when he's force-fed. So this creates a situation for the British where they don't know how to respond. If somebody goes on hunger strike and you force feed them, there's a chance that they will die, uh, that you're going to get negative publicity. On the other hand, if you give in to their demands, it shows weakness. So this is something that you wouldn't have seen in, in earlier insurgencies. And it's utilized by the Irish to, uh, to tremendous effect during the War of Independence. The other then, like I said, is, is um, political prisoner status. Again, this had to be extended to suffragettes because they didn't really know how to deal with them. How do you deal with women who are committing criminal offences, but there's no actual kind of criminal motive for it. There is a political motive, and I believe it was uh, Winston Churchill who introduced the status of political prisoner. So quite often the Irish make demands for this, uh, this status to be given to them. The British don't want to do this because they want to frame the conflict as a, as a criminal um, kind of operation. And this thing feeds into uh, into the propaganda. So it's the first time that you see people fighting for political status, and it's the first time that you see hunger strikes, which will be used uh, both in Ireland in future years into the the modern troubles, and uh, in in the more modern insurgencies as well. 
Um, I suppose just another point to make on that in the terms of innovations. With the Boer War, it was so far away from Britain that if you have a scenario where a, um, a village is burnt down as part of the, the scorched earth policy of the British, you can't really get a journalist from London out to that. It's very difficult to actually get somebody on the ground, whereas in Ireland, with the siege of Tralee, with the sack of Balbriggan, with the burning of Cork, the journalists can send somebody from London, they can be within Ireland, get a full report and get it back within 24 hours. So this really begins to show you where um, the media is going to go in later conflicts when Britain isn't able to, in Ireland, uh, I know some people were arguing why didn't they introduce the kind of scorched earth policy that they had used in the Boer War because they were now under the gaze of the international media in a way that they hadn't been in earlier conflicts. And this will affect uh, later insurgencies as well. That was very interesting. It's uh, quite fascinating. Uh, I think the if you look at World War One in general, you can already see like a lot of similarities in um, or prophecies even when you look at the development of mass mm -hmm. media. And uh, it seems quite fitting that this conflict then also goes hand in hand with the developments in uh, modern media. Absolutely, yeah. So um, um, I suppose also, I was just going to say very quickly, the, the War of Independence is also the first uh, insurgency to follow the kind of the modern path of the aim is not necessarily to win, the aim is not to lose. As long as you can keep your army in the field, it doesn't matter whether they're actually winning engagements as long as they're actually uh, prosecuting engagements. The longer that the war continues, the worse it is for the British. And this is something that you will see with the United States, we'll say in Vietnam, and a lot of the, the more modern uh, insurgencies that, that come afterwards. The longer the insurgency goes on, the worse it is for the, the ruling power. Um, and I don't think that that's really the way it was with the earlier insurgencies we'll say the Boer War, where the strict aim was to win. So it's just kind of a, uh, like you said, forecasting developments to come. Yeah. So uh, you already mentioned um, the opinion on the reactions of the British a bit, which fits our second question, which is from S Joe Carstairs. In the Irish War of Independence, how might British forces have regarded their Irish enemy? Were they, as in the Great War, stoked up on stories of ethnic inferiority, or would they have had respect for the Irish? Did they have any sympathy for the cause of Irish independence? What proportion of fighting forces would have been ethnically Irish anyway? How might these factors have impacted British morale? Mm -hmm. um, a really interesting question that uh, a lot of attention hasn't been paid to until, until recently. Um, Jesse would probably be interested in this, the study of British uh, political cartoons and uh, sketches in, in newspapers. So throughout the 1800s, these were designed to do a number of things. Uh, I suppose I should explain that Ireland had been a, a separate kingdom since maybe the, the 1200s, or sorry, the 1500s was when Ireland was made into the kingdom of Ireland. It had been under English slash Norman French rule since the early 1100s. But in 1801, um, legislation was passed that merged the Kingdom of Great Britain and the Kingdom of Ireland into the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And throughout the 1800s, there is a political effort to justify British involvement in Ireland. And this is often geared around hyping up uh, and portraying Irish inferiority. Uh, if you look at political cartoons of the time, the Irish are portrayed as stupid um, ape-like, 
so if you actually see um, this kind of concept of a, a gorilla, one of the most famous ones is the Fenian Guy Fawkes, and it basically shows a very kind of uh, ape-looking figure sitting on a, um, a keg of gunpowder, and there's a smoking pipe in the, the hole, so this is going to blow up, and around him is his family, and it's this idea that the Irish are violent, they, are, they will destroy everything around them um, for a petty victory, and that they need a kind of a stronger hand to guide them. So this is, this is reinforced throughout the 1800s. Uh, into the early 1900s, you see some of the cartoons around home rule. Ireland is depicted as, as being a pig, and um, either something like John Redmond is trying to guide it in one direction and the pig is running off in another direction. Of course, you have the, the, the implications there of being pig ignorant. And so this, is, this would have been reinforced for various different reasons, justification for involvement in Ireland, um, justification for why Ireland couldn't and shouldn't be given independence. It would drive itself into the ground. And um, so when you, when you then deploy British soldiers into Ireland, they are coming in with this with this attitude and with this kind of belief. They are expecting to meet very stupid people. And interestingly enough, during the War of Independence, uh, this is actually played up by the Irish. So Michael Collins, for example, a famous Irish uh, leader, actually avoided detection on a number of occasions by playing up to the stereotype of being stupid. The He was able to get out of scenarios where the British kind of thought, well, a man who is this foolish obviously couldn't be a, a threat. And there are various different examples of, of this happening at times. Um, so there's definitely this this belief of, of ethnic superiority uh, over the Irish. Um, one good example is um, Ormond Winther, who will become the head of military intelligence in Ireland throughout 1920. He says at, at one stage that the Irishman somewhat resembles a dog and like a dog understands firm treatment. So the idea is that the Irish need to be treated with um, kind of harsh measures to because it's the only thing that they understand. And uh, interestingly enough, then in, in 1921, government official or a military official in Ireland writes to the to the British saying that the Irish are rebelling not because they oppose British government, but because they oppose any form of government that they basically want to return to this kind of tribal warfare amongst themselves. And that um, it it drives British policy making in Ireland. It drives their decision to treat this as a criminal operation as opposed to an actual independence movement or an insurgency. And it it really affects their policy not alone during Home Rule, not alone during the War of Independence, but straight through into the 1940s and indeed into the modern era. You actually do see some of the same rhetoric uh, being used. It reemerged around around Brexit. Um, some of the, the other points that were made there, did they have sympathy with the cause for Irish independence? Generally, no. Very few of them would have had sympathy. The black and tans that were arriving in Ireland were predominantly English, uh, had served in the war. They would already be kind of um, hyped up on the, the for king and country rhetoric. And here was this belief that Ireland was attempting to destroy the Union. It had um, betrayed the United Kingdom in 1916 by getting weapons from the Germans. It had refused to play its part in the in the Great War. Um, it had avoided conscription. It had it had only became violent uh, when conscription was threatened. And now again, it was it was attacking Britain uh, at a point in time when its economy was was weak. So there was this belief. 
Uh, some members of the Black and Tans did actually give evidence, or not evidence, but uh, intelligence to the IRA during the War of Independence. But this was primarily motivated out of um, a fear of, of the scenario that they found themselves in and a desire to, uh, to protect themselves. But we do know of one case, uh, an individual called Reginald Stenning, who defected from the actual the British Army, from the East Lancashire Regiment, uh, during the, the truce, and he actually fought with the anti-treaty IRA during the, uh, the Civil War. Um, but those cases like that are very, very rare, um, uh, very seldom. The, the, what was the proportion of the fighting forces uh, would have been eth- ethnically Irish? If you're looking at the RIC in 1919, 100% of the RIC would have been Irish. That's the Royal uh, Irish Constabulary that was uh, uh, that the police force. That's correct, yeah. Uh, so the RIC had been formed in the 1830s. Uh, Ireland would have been very similar to Britain at that point in time. Counties would have had their own independent uh, police forces. These were all merged together into a single force in the 1830s. Dublin maintained a, a separate police force called the, the Dublin Metropolitan Police. But the RIC was established on a on a semi-military uh, grounds. Its aim was to basically assist in suppressing uh, rebellions. And it was known as the Irish Constabulary until 1867, when it was given the... The, the title Royal after um, after helping to put down the 1867 rebellion. And it remained as a predominantly military force until the, the 1880s and 1890s when various land acts were introduced uh, following the land war. So control of the land in Ireland was had been a big issue going back over centuries. Uh, Ireland became more pacified in the aftermath of these land acts And the RIC was given increasingly kind of civilian tasks to do. So it actually lost a lot of its military nature. In Ireland today, we still refer to our, our police forces, Ungar the Siakona, but we we refer to um, to the places they're stationed as barracks. And this goes back to uh, the RIC because they were stationed in barracks as opposed to police stations. Uh, and this is, again, due to their, their military nature. Most of their training in the early days uh, was around kind of musketry and things like this. But um, the RIC over its over its career would have recruited about 81,000 people, um, mostly Irish. By 1919, you're talking about 100%. And these are the people who, who suffered the brunt of the attacks from the IRA in the early days. Um, as for recruits from the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries, there are various different numbers around, but we think maybe at max about 10% of them were Irish. So you are looking at... Um, That's a, like a, that's a completely different. I mean, it's uh, it's the same unit. They're attached to it, but they're that's like a completely mm-hmm. different situation. Then, um, what your yeah exactly. So basically, in April of 1919, Aaron, which is the the revolutionary parliament that's established on the the 21st of January, it declares a boycott against the RIC. Uh, De Valera. The, the president says that uh, they are not to be treated as clean, healthy members of our community. And at this point in time, recruits joining the force drop dramatically, both because of the, vo- the violence that's been leveled against them and because of this boycott. So by early 1920, the British need to start uh, recruiting from England, both to solve their own unemployment crisis created in the aftermath of the, uh, the First World War and... Um, because there's no recruits coming from Ireland. Initially, this is actually welcomed by the IRA, uh, because I think we might be talking about this again later on, but 
it's very difficult to to attack fellow Irishmen and claim that you're fighting against a foreign um, occupying force. When the black and tans arrive, it allows for a very binary black and white presentation of the conflict. The Irish IRA versus the British uh, Crown Forces. And they are blamed for the majority, for all of the, the retaliation that occurs from the state security forces in 1920, even though the Irish-born members of the RIC are actually also engaging in a lot of it. All right. That's all quite fascinating. Um mm -hmm. I, I had the impression that since you have a whole channel about, dedicated to this, to this topic, that there would be much more than we would have would be able to touch on in our episode. And so far, you're proving me very right. Um, and we still have a few more questions to go, and I'm pretty sure mm. this will continue to be very interesting. Um, this question comes from Superuser. Conventional knowledge says Britain gave up Ireland as they lost effective control over most of the country and had no hope of getting it back. Could you expand on what it, this means in practice? Was it, for example, loss of tax or who they needed to work with and why they found themselves unable to regain control? Thanks. Mm -hmm. So um, what exactly does loss of control mean in the context of the War of Independence? There's, there's a number of different ways that they lose control. The, the first is the 1918 general election. Um, the Irish Parliamentary Party, which had been pushing for home rule, had been the, the big party in Ireland. It's all but wiped out by Sinn Féin in the 1918 general election. Is that, they is, refuse. Is, is that because uh, they were more seen as the moderates and the mood had already swung swung towards like complete independence by then? So the, the Irish Parliamentary Party ended up in a, in a very awkward position. Um, Home rule had been granted to Ireland in 1914. It had yeah. been put on the statute book and suspended for the duration of the war. The Irish Parliamentary Party then backed the war, and this became actually massively um, bad for them, we'll say, in Ireland. The, the Irish people turned against the war for, for a number of different reasons. Um, it, was, it was never... You're, you're going back even further again... Uh, into the failures, we'll say, to, to bring Ireland into the United Kingdom. So s selling the war in Ireland was very difficult. Okay. Um, the Irish Parliamentary Party suffered because it was encouraging people to go and fight in the First World War. Ireland was then receiving uh, information about the, the, the massive casualties that were being suffered. The Irish Parliamentary Party was being hit for that. Then you have the 1916 Rising, which brings Sinn Féin to prominence. The main thing that finishes off the Irish Parliamentary Party is the conscription crisis in 1918. Uh, with the German spring offensive, the British need reinforcements. Ireland has not had conscription applied to it. Uh, it was argued that to do so in May of 1916, or in March of 1916, would have been uh, too dangerous, that it would have caused uh, an upswell of violence in Ireland. But now Britain needs men and what they do is they immediately introduce home rule alongside conscription the people um do not want this there are anti-conscription rallies across the country and Sinn Féin is seen as the leading the leading source on this it's it's not uh, strictly right to say that the Irish wanted independence The 1918 general election is, is a really strange one in the sense that where they know that there is a demand for the republic, they will go to the electorate and say, we will secure the republic. Where they know that there are 
less uh, extreme views, they will say we are fighting for self-determination, which could be um, a home rule or a dominion parliament within the United Kingdom. But the um, the the basic the basic idea is that um, the Home Rule Party has has been linked with uh, a lot of the the main uh, power moves of the, the the British Parliament, and this has affected them badly. They're, they've been associated with conscription, they've been associated with Home Rule, and the Irish people have lost their desire for any of this. Okay, so and. So from this situation, uh, this was a bit of a tangent, but I think it was quite mm. fascinating as a background. So from this situation on, you were saying this is where the control, uh, the lose of control uh, started, the loss of Absolutely. control. Um, so the, the first thing is that uh, Sinn Féin wins the 1918 general election, we'll say, uh, in, in Ireland, but refuses to attend Parliament. It establishes its own parliament in Dublin, declares itself as the legitimate government, begins appointing ambassadors to uh, Washington and to Paris, sends a delegation to argue for Irish representation at the Treaty of Versailles. These are things that Britain does not want. So this is the, the first kind of loss of control. It's, it's losing control of the electorate. The next major loss comes in early 1920 with the local uh, elections. So these are for local urban councils in uh, January and rural councils in June. And again, uh, Sinn Féin wins the overwhelming majority of these. And many of them begin to declare allegiance to Dáil Éireann. Um, they refuse to take money from, from uh, the British Treasury. They collect taxes. Um, And it's, it's this kind of loss of, of local government. Again, the people are declaring that they do not recognize the British government as the, the legitimate governing force. I've already spoken about April of 1919 when the Dole boycott comes in and the people begin to... Um, one of the sayings that emerges from it is that um, people will not talk to them in church, uh, shopkeepers will not serve them, and undertakers will not bury them. So again, the RIC is losing its its status as the, the main governing police force in Ireland. And uh, the, the last major loss of control comes with the, the, the summer court cases, which will be, the, the anniversary will be coming up in a couple of weeks' time. The IRA and Sinn Féin send out warnings to jurors not to attend these. So a lot of them collapse because nobody attends. And when people do attend, when they are compelled to attend and act as jurors, they refuse to convict um, IRA members or Sinn Féin members of any crimes, even in clear-cut cases. So what you, what you now have is a, a position where there is a, uh, a revolutionary parliament. The people are declaring their support for it. And if you look at, we'll say, the German sociologist uh, Max Weber, he argues that a state is a human community uh, that, that um, delegates The, a monopoly on physical violence or a monopoly on violence. So the Irish people are saying we do not recognize the rights of the British or the RIC to enforce the law. We recognize Dáil Éireann and we recognize its police force and its court system. And probably the best example of this is in Roscommon. A man is, is brought before the Dáil courts and he is prosecuted of a crime and he is sentenced to a period of exile on an island in a, a lake in Roscommon. So he is rowed out by the Sinn Féin court, he is put on the island, and they row away. A few days later, the RIC come out to rescue him, and he refuses to get into the boat. He tells them that I have been found guilty of a crime, I have been sentenced, and I will see out my sentence. 
this yeah. man no longer recognizes the ability of the RIC to protect him or uh, the ability of the British crown or the British state forces to actually impose law and order on on Ireland. And this is um, uh, the, the culmination of this loss of control and loss of power. This is quite fascinating from like a state theory side if we um, stick with you know people like Weber. Um, it's not mm -hmm. just about the um, uh, monopoly and violence. It's also mm. uh, basically saying the foundation of any state are the three pillars, the judicative, the exec executive and the legislative. And uh, with all the examples you just um, told us, uh, it seems they basically um, started digging at all three of these pillars of the state. So the uh, the uh, the parliament means that uh, that they have they they want to pass their own laws and uh, interpret laws according to their own uh, status. So the that that's like one one pillar. Then the the court uh, example you gave is one pillar, and uh, the police is another p uh, pillar as like uh, an example of somebody who is enforcing uh, the laws. Absolutely. So it's not just a case that the the IRA are are attacking the RIC. There are Sinn Féin itself is also attacking the actual structures of the state. Okay, so and, yeah, uh, and, and because I think what Super User was more getting at is more also the mm -hmm. fact that uh, when we t when in the episode we talked about that um, with increasing increasing number of RIA attacks, uh, they were the, the RIC was increasingly uh, herded up in these barracks that you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. which then also means like physically they are not cannot be present to control uh, the countryside. Absolutely. So the what you also have is the resistance, the actual physical resistance to attempts by the RIC to continue imposing law on the country. Uh, what you'll see is, um, like I mentioned there earlier on, the, the RIC had, had became domesticated is the term that, uh, that some historians use. In the early 1900s, they began um, carrying out the agricultural census and things like this. Ireland actually had very little crime. So when it wasn't in a state of outright rebellion, it was actually a very peaceful area to uh, to police. And the RIC had been allowed to deteriorate as peaceful conditions in Ireland took hold in the early 1900s, uh, with the, the exception, we'll say, of the 1916 Rising. So by the 1920s, The average constable in his, is in his mid-30s. He's now facing off against IRA men in their early 20s. And the, the police force has also dropped in size. It doesn't need a, uh, a massive police force to, um, to oversee a small area and to just do the agricultural census and things. So in 1919, a number of barracks are closed to bring the remaining ones up to a defensible size and... Then as more attacks from the IRA are carried out, especially around this time 100 years ago, uh, authorization was coming through to attack barracks throughout the country. These are then abandoned. And on the night of the 2nd to the 3rd of April, um, I think it's up to 400 barracks nationwide, uh, abandoned barracks are destroyed in a single night, as well as tax collection offices. Of course, this is again a major strike against uh, the British ability to, to remain uh, in control in the country. As for taking control back, Uh, Neville McCready very simply said that uh, all that would be needed uh, to take back control would be 150,000 troops and the imposition of martial law. 
in a, in a, yeah, coming from Britain, which is bankrupt and also uh -huh. uh, war weary after uh, the Great Power Wars, basically, and also still um, having to police um, India, the Middle East, the African colonies, uh, etc. Absolutely, yeah. What McCready is doing here is he's trying to show the government this is not a criminal scenario; it cannot be handled by the police and the actual solution is so terrifying that we have to come to negotiate with them. And this is what begins to uh, to, to start the British um, down the track of negotiating towards the, the middle of, of 1921 when they realize from McCready what will have to be done to restore order. All right. Um... I'm going to skip a few questions now. We got quite quite sure. a few of them, and we can do a, a second round of them if there's more interest, because we are already at the half hour mark. But uh, I think a lot of people found it quite fascinating that we did a deep dive into this sort of tactical uh, military aspect of the fighting, in which of course, uh, you know, in a civil war or an, even like in a guerrilla style war, is very much intertwined with the political side, which we talked about quite a lot. But I want to um, wrap this up with a question of Hugh O'Donnell, uh, who asks, the British had tanks in Dublin, and I presume... Sorry. The British had tanks in Dublin, and I presume at other critical locations. Did they play much of a role in the fighting, or just during the odd firefight in Dublin and intimidating, encouraging the public? The British also employed, uh, employed quite a few armored cars during the war. How were they generally employed by sections and troops attached to garrisons, battalions for supporting patrols or in some other manner? Um, yeah, so unfortunately the, the actual use of um, armored vehicles is, is not something that's been studied massively, predominantly because it was restricted to so few areas in Ireland. Uh, you will see during the Limerick Soviet in uh, April of 1919, when the, the city of Limerick was cut off by the British military and the workers proclaimed a, a Soviet in the center of the city for, uh, for two weeks, the British used tanks at um, checkpoints and at bridges to, to uh, stop people from, from entering the city. Tanks were used exclusively in the larger cities and in very low numbers. Um, I suppose what I should point out here is you, you have a number of distinctive forces in operation. You have the Royal Irish Constabulary, which has the Black and Tans attached to it. Then you have the Auxiliaries. These are created as a mobile um, kind of strike force. The Black and Tans are static. They reinforce barracks, and generally attacks happen to them. The Auxiliaries go out and actually look for for uh, the IRA and look to engage them. They do borrow from the British Army uh, um, armored cars, but in general, they don't actually have any of their own. The Army is very reluctant to give out any armored cars to them because, of course, if one goes missing, then that's uh, a lot of people in a lot of trouble. So predominantly, the, the tanks are used in the cities. Armored cars are used in some of the towns, but the IRA would have heavily trenched roads Uh, they would have felled trees. Very short journeys often took a few hours because you either needed to remove the uh, the barricades or you needed to find other ways of going around. Uh, so in general, they weren't suited for um, the, the roads in Ireland at the time. And indeed, there's a couple of ambushes. Uh, Michal O'Sullivan, in, um, where Mountain Men have sown, he describes an event where a convoy of armored cars actually got stuck in the road 
and at three separate locations and they were able to attack the three separate locations um, independently because they had they had ended up so kind of spread out so in in general what the auxiliaries wanted to do was they wanted to move fast um, and as as you've maybe seen from some of the videos the armored cars some of them had a max speed of 10 miles per hour uh, had difficulty getting up hills so they weren't great for the Irish countryside and uh, were generally left in in the larger cities yeah that makes uh, total sense uh, I've I come to think of it I also have mainly seen them on photographs from I think Dublin or other towns mm. um, there, I mean I mean a, the, I mean the, the Rolls-Royce uh, armored car for example is something that served in remote parts of the empire like in India or in the Middle East it served quite famously with the mm -hmm. Dunstar Force and with um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia that being said you know it's like it, it, these specific types of vehicles might have been suited for that but that then still you still need to have like a warlike infrastructure to use them properly and uh, you know also have an idea and a doctrine and a tactical way to to use them uh, in any any way and i actually also come to think of it i think it's probably easier to drive um an armored car around in something like uh, a desert region uh, versus uh, the images I've seen from the Irish countryside seem to indicate a lot of um, like uh, hedgerows and um, fences and the like, which is, you know, in 1920s an impenetrable <laughs> um, thing yeah. to uh, uh, obstacle for, for an armored car. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of accounts of, of armored cars getting into a lot of, of difficulty on the roads. So generally, they, they didn't uh, tend to be there. I do have a couple of links on the use of, of armored vehicles in, in the War of Independence, the, the limited uses, so I can send those on. Um, but in general, towns and cities, and again, for intimidation, uh, for checkpoints and things like this, that's what they were predominantly used for. Very rarely, I, I don't think there was any used actually during the War of Independence in, um, in any major... Um, engagements and again the IRA tended to to especially when the flying column was introduced tended to, to hide in mountains and things like this so again areas that wouldn't have been great for uh, for traversing with armored vehicles well James this was quite fascinating um, as I said in the beginning of the episode uh, we will have more episodes about Ireland I think the next one will The latest probably be in October. Maybe we will do, do one over the summer. And, you know, we will also continue to cover this once it uh, becomes a civil war as well. Um, thank you a lot, uh, James. And um, if people want to watch your the stuff you produce, which is heavily inspired by the Great War, as you said, and uh -huh. we are honored by that, uh, what, what should they search on YouTube to, to find you? Yeah, it's uh, The Irish Nation Lives on YouTube, and you can find me on Twitter, at The Irish Nation. All right. I will also put links to that in when I publish this episode in the podcast description. And, uh, yeah, there were quite a few more questions, actually, from, uh, from the community. So maybe we will do a second run. Let's see how this um, COVID-19 isolation works out if we find the time again. I also hope I will be able to improve the sound setup in the future. But uh, yeah, thanks a lot, James. Thanks a lot to everybody thanks. at home. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks very much for having me.